grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey, 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 welcome. We got a surprise show today. It surprised me. <laughs> we weren't supposed to do a show till tomorrow, but uh, that my guest today is a gentleman I've been trying to get on the show for quite a while, and I'm real excited to have him. And uh, otherwise, we wouldn't have got him till maybe December or January if we were lucky he's that busy. His name is Brian Leslie. He used to be a police chief, uh, but he is an expert in interrogation techniques. And I've been, you know, like I said, I've been trying to get him on here for quite a while. So I'm excited about it. And uh, my name is, by the way, my name is Charlotte. And I am the founder of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. You can find us at www.californiahaunts.org. I'm trying to get in the right position here. You can, And uh, the radio show's website is www.californiahauntsradio.com. Anyway, like I said, Brian Leslie's with us today, and I'm really stoked and excited. This is a special show. Um, it's gonna, you know, we'll try and stay on an hour today, see how things go. But uh, I'm looking forward to this. You know, as a as a journalist, uh, we're trained to uh, learn how to interview. You know, inter well, I'm not saying interrogate, but interview people. You know, look at body language and stuff like that. So it should be interesting to get the inside scoop on interrogation techniques that pol that police officers use. You know, and then and see how they do their stuff. So I'm real, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Anyway, I want to thank you guys for tu the, for tuning in. And for those of you that missed the day show today, this is going to replay at 6.30 tonight, the usual time. So I'll go ahead and put and post this so people can actually see the show. But I want to thank everybody who comes in today ahead of time, you know, as well. So I want to go ahead and call Brian. And it's going to be a phone interview just to let you guys know. And uh, here we go. I still think I need to get some dialing music, you guys. Of course, I had a drop down just happen on my cell phone, naturally. Okay, here we go. Hi, is this, is this Brian? Speaking. Hi, this is Charlotte with California Haunts Radio. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Getting a bit of a feedback there. Are you getting the like um, echo? Okay, is that better? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, just well, I'm more concerned on your end. <laughs> no, it's it's fine on my end. Okay. As long as it's okay with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's no, it's fine. That's fine. I just uh, just as long as you guys are okay on your side, you're not getting an echo on the on the interview. Yeah, we're good. So tell me a little bit about yourself, sir. Okay. Well, as you can. Uh, as you probably read, I'm a forensic expert in course of interrogation and interviews as well as uh, investigative methods. I deal primarily with um, homicide cases, a lot of high-profile cases, as well as sex offense cases. Those are primarily the two types of cases I take on. I also handle cases before the court as well as uh, in post-conviction cases, so I do both. I'm a former chief of police, uh, 15 years. Um, and uh, with that, I, I've written several books, 
police officer, but also um, uh, created my uh, my expertise over a long period of time. That basically I do uh, nothing but these types of cases now. So that's all I do. What's the difference between an interview and an interrogation? Well, an interview, just for the basics, is fact finding, and it's usually done through the investigative process. And an interrogation where they have the presumption of guilt of a suspect, and then they go into um, more of an accusatory nature of an interview. And the difference really with an interview and an interrogation is, and this is what happens with a lot of people, they go in thinking that they're going in as, as a, for an interview, mm-hmm. which is masked that way and end up being interrogated. And uh, the difference really is, is that there's some visual setups in the rooms um, for interrogation versus uh, an interview. An interview can pretty much be done anywhere. It's usually done anywhere in, in, a, in a police cruiser right up to the person's house to a, a controlled interview room. Whereas interrogation uh, traditionally is always held in a controlled environment. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, because I was telling the my audience that you know, as a journalist, I'm trained to I'm trained to do interviews as well. You know, to 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 look at certain things when I'm talking to people. What what when you go in to interrogate somebody, what are you looking for? Well, uh, okay. So as an interrogator, when you go into a room, the purpose is to get a confession. Now, mm-hmm. what ends up happening uh, in this in this process is coercive methods are used quite often, and this is what I look for. This is what I'm a specialist in. And coercive methods such as minimization, maximization, uh, narrative integration, these types of things are used to convince an individual to confess. Now, I'm going to go back to prior to the interrogation. It's very important. Okay. Because as a as a course of interrogation expert, I'm much different than a false confession. Okay. A false confession expert is an academia. Um, they basically do research, uh, statistics, that sort of thing. They testify in court on that basis alone. As a course of interrogation, I go back to how the original case file started, what the investigation or what the interviews were like with the inter- with the witnesses, and what. What I'm looking for in the witness interviews, whether there was narrative integration with the witness interviews. Did the officer himself decide this is a suspect that they want to look at prior to even doing an investigation, which is often the case? And therefore, you can vet it by going through how the interviews were conducted by the witnesses, how the identifications were conducted by the witnesses of the suspect. That's very important because what happens, I've written an article and it's uh, even got a website called uh, The Dominant Witness Theory. And what happens in the Dominant Witness Theory is that if it's a multi-witness event, what ends up occurring is that the dominant witness will always uh, integrate their version of the, of the description into the subordinate witnesses. So when officers arrive on the scene, what they normally would say is, what did you see? What they should be asking for is who did you speak to before I arrived? Because that will give you the key to the dominant witness, much like a dominant juror who influences other jurors. The, the, uh, when I was a policing, I used to always, in a multi-witness event, take, because uh, there was multi-officers involved, I would always take the statement of a witness and then later go back and say, now, I want you to tell me what you really thought was going on because I think you knew what the color of the 
everybody was saying that was this, this, this. I need to know what you have to say. That's the first key of a flawed investigation. Because what ends up happening with that with that identification, it now targets a suspect that traditionally mm -hmm. might not have been uh, targeted if the evidence wasn't there. Now it becomes evidence. Because what the officer now is doing is that individual they're focusing on. And all they're going to be doing is looking at that individual at that point. Not that they should be doing that. It's called a deductive, uh, deductive method of investigation, where you only look for inculpatory evidence, not exculpatory. Inductive simply means that you accept all information, you vet the information, the source of the information, and you draw inferences, and based on those inferences, you draw reasonable conclusions. That's not the way investigations are traditionally done. Okay. But deductive is what they are. So then what you do is you take those witnesses, or you take witness information, and you didn't vet the witness. How do you know that that witness was truthful? Did they have a stake in the end of the, of the game? Are they attempting to hide their own complicity? These are things that a lot of investigations don't go that far into. And therefore, you end up targeting the wrong person. You bring them into an interrogation room, and you keep harping on, I just need to know the truth. The truth is subjective. It's your truth, not the real truth, because you didn't do a good investigation. So now you're taking somebody into an interrogation room. They're giving you. They're not giving you what you want. Now you're going to start using coercive methods, minimization, saying, you know what, uh, what you did is way down there. What's up here is really serious. And uh, then they start using themes, which, you know, there's a guy that came into the interrogation room the other day. He, he told the truth and uh, the DA um, only gave him or the judge only gave him um, one year. Um, and there's another guy that didn't tell the truth and he got 30 years. So now there's pressure placed on the individual. That's, he's put in a no-hope situation using these types of techniques, maximization, minimization, uh, narrative integration, narrative traps which no matter how you answer the, 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 no matter how you answer the question, it's always going to be inculpatory. Okay. So these are techniques that are used and most people have no idea they're being used. And this is why um, what I do is I go back to the very beginning of how the interview, how the, how the suspect, or sorry, how the witnesses were interviewed, how the identifications were created. Then I follow the trail up to the interrogation. Was the presumption of guilt, which is the requirement, met? Or was it met by a flawed investigation? Or was it met by, by um, mis misconduct? You know, um, editing, uh, and I get a lot of this too, not, I won't say where, but I get a lot of these types of things where you've got edited um, confessions where the seconds are knocked off. Um, I had one, there's 43 edits in the, in the interrogation, uh, 33 minutes of video missing. Interesting, and that was and and that was a, a a double capital murder case. Is that done on purpose? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. It's and what a lot of people don't understand um, is it's called it basically police culture. The there's a lot people don't understand about police culture. Number one, most police officers there's the uh, and I'm sure you've heard a lot of these types of terms the thin blue line, the, the, you know, uh, basically the brotherhood, this sort of thing. And I've written a lot of articles on this, and, and the fact of the matter is these people that, that enter into misconduct of this nature are very few and far between. There's a lot of good officers, but they don't. As you know, through the media, they uh, the, the bad ones are hitting the top, uh, you know, the media points. 
um, uh, when they do something like the, you know, um, like the Floyd case. Those types of things happen all the time, but certain ones get to hit the media. The You're dealing with officers that are dealing with people every day in a negative way. Um, a lot of the time, if you see uh, evidence that's perhaps been eliminated, not, you know, for some reason disappeared, mm-hmm. it may just be because of them trying to cover themselves because they didn't do something. Um, that doesn't mean it was necessarily misconduct. And in the interrogation room, um, when you come down to misconduct, or sorry, into um, um, into uh, coercive elements, it's not it's not misconduct. What it is is it's a technique they've been trained, and they that technique is improper. And the technique I won't get into the name of it because of reasons, but right. that technique was um, basically impeached in 2017 after 30 years of use. So every department had been using that technique. And they're, they're basically hardwired for it. So what ends up happening is you now have, and uh, there's a great report that's out. It's the, the Brooklyn DA's report on, the, I think it's called 425 Years. Um, I, I just don't know the exact name, but that if you search that, you'll get it. Right. Um, and that report looked at 25, um, it looked at 25 cases that were uh, exonerated and, and examined why they were exonerated and the, the techniques that were used in confessions in those and uh it's very very revealing um how do faulty uh identifications of suspects happen uh, sorry go ahead again sorry. how do faulty identifications of suspects occur how often all right uh, misidentification yeah how do they do that lots. okay lots and how it does a lot. how does that happen because you're not vetting the witnesses properly. You're accepting okay. their version of events. You're not comparing notes with other witnesses. You're, the way you're taking, the, uh, for example, a suspect is called a six-pack. When you're looking at a photo lineup, um, there's techniques that are used by officers. Um, and I, I've actually got about two or three of these cases right now that basically are used in such a way where the witness has been coached prior to the, there's a, uh, other techniques that are used, uh, some tapping on the picture, things like this, that gives that sense that this is the guy you need to pick. There's lots of these types of things that go on. And, I mean, when, when these things aren't going on, a legitimate six-pack is given out to a legitimate witness. The fact is, is maybe too much information was given to the witness prior to them picking. There, there's a lot of, it's not misconduct, it's just bad judgment and not understanding why somebody would pick a specific individual and the question is did they know this individual before okay they have a stake in the game it becomes a tarnished uh identification if there's a stake in the game you got to find out the corroborating evidence okay yeah because i'm thinking about you know when you said and then suspects i mean if if the guy is further or if the person's further away or maybe they're on the move i mean they could be misidentify that way too because I, I know police have the same test that journalists have where they'll run somebody through a room you know yeah, and everybody mean, has to write down what the guy looked like and i mean everybody in the room comes up with something different sure absolutely and this is one of the reasons why thorough investigation process has to occur with that it's not just about looking at the individual sure you can say this is what he was wearing this is where you know what his his hair was did he have facial hair those are things that are important, but don't. But those things have to be consistent with other things. It's not 
seen that individual? Was it, it was it improbable that they would have seen that type of an individual? Um, did he look like somebody else? Is it just clothing and hair that they saw? That can mean anybody. Okay. Now, um, how and why do people confess to crimes they don't commit? How often do they? Or how, how and why don't they? I don't know. How, how, well, my mouth. How, how and why do they confess to crimes they don't commit? Well, yeah, and I just covered that basically. But okay. uh, once you're in the interrogation room, and let's say, for example, a good 12 or 11 hour, 10 hour interrogation right. is, a good, is a good indicator that that person probably didn't do anything and that the pressure alone is, is building up. I'll give you an example of an interrogation using a blackout confession, for example. Okay. A blackout confession simply means that in the, in the, build, in the report building portion of the interrogation in the beginning, um, the officer may share, you know, made up information with the, with the suspect, such as when I was younger, I used to drink all the time. I can remember the parties we used to have. I used to black out every so often. Did you ever do that? Yes. Thinking the cops on his side. <laughs> yeah, 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 I do that. You know, I blacked out a few times myself and they start becoming buddies. And then he said, well, do you think maybe that's what happened when, you, when this particular thing happened? That's why you don't re remember it? And he said, oh, no, 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 no. But an hour later, after a little bit more of pushing that, that narrative, oh, uh, yeah, it's very possible. And because you've used minimization tactics with that, what happens is he believes that it's that he's not going to be as culpable if he didn't if he didn't remember it. Right. Okay. And that's how he ends up confessing. And the fact is, is that there was no evidence, no investigation that really even supported that. They were banking everything on the confession. Okay. And do they um like like on TV uh do the good cop bad cop thing? Well, yeah, that's kind of outdated a little bit. Uh, very seldomly is that going to fly in court anyway. Um, simply because uh, there's the minute you start putting bully tactics on an individual, that becomes coercive in nature. Mm -hmm. um, and if I was to look at it, uh, that would be definitely what it is. Um, those go back to the days of called what's known as the third degree, and that was well before the psychological training came into psychological uh, interrogation. Okay, how many um, of these uh, mischarged criminals? You know, these guys that are charged for crimes they didn't commit. How, how many of you uh, run into? Uh, how many, uh, sorry, how many cases do I deal with? Well, yeah, I mean, if, if, if say, flawed police investigations you know, resulting in, in an arrest. Oh, I'm going to say probably what I deal with personally, a year, probably 120. Wow. But that's just me. That doesn't mean, I mean, there's lots that never, ever get exposed. There's lots that never get challenged. There's lots that don't even hire an expert like myself. And I'm the only expert that does what I do from my knowledge. Are you able to interview the um, suspects? No, I don't talk okay. to anybody. I don't have, I am not an investigator. I don't do uh, investigations. All I do is look at the interrogation um, videos. I look at the, uh, the transcripts that go along with them. I look at the police reports. I look at the interviews with the witnesses, how they were conducted. I look at other information that they relied upon to target the suspect, the, if necessary, the identifications. I look at all that, and I, I bring it, I reverse engineer it from the beginning. You know, the case that comes to mind is the case of those um, black guys, uh, those, those black kids. What, the, the Central Park Five? Yes, the Central Park Five. 
yeah, yeah. And the Central Park Five was a good example of that. That was done in uh, in Manhattan. Um, uh, and the issue with that particular one was that back in those days, they were u- utilizing the third degree type method. Um, and that had a lot to do with them going into an interrogation room with a um, with one of the officers, so there was no witnesses, and um, and they were coerced into providing a statement, and that's how that happened. What a mess that was. And being young, you got to remember, vulnerability has a lot to do with targeting. If a person goes in with the idea, for example, you have a situation where you have, uh, let's say, a baby death. Mm-hmm. Uh, a good example of that is the parents want to help the police. They're, they want to they want to go in and give police information. They think that they're helping, but what they're now being converted into is potential persons of interest or suspects. Okay, okay. What's what you... Unknowingly. Okay, makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. What, what's one of your more me- uh, memorable cases that you've worked on? Well, I was the um, I was the expert on the Molly Tippett's case. Okay. Um, I've dealt with the, the Hammond case out of uh, California, the capital murder case. I've been involved with. Uh, I do a lot of uh, very high profile cases. I just I don't have them in front of me, so I can't read them off to you, but uh, I do a lot of those types of cases, yeah. And how long does it take you to, to, to go over everything and get prepared for court? Oh, it depends on how long the interrogation was, um, how much, I usually ask for 30 days. Um, sometimes it can be done in 30 days. Sometimes I need a little bit more depending on the types of case. Case it was, how much, uh, uh, if it's a if it's a five or seven hour interrogation, um, I'm going to need it probably more than thirty days. My reports alone um, can range anywhere from sixty to one hundred and seventy five pages. Now you were a former police chief, so what 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 made you get into this line of work? This this part of it. Well, as a, as a, a former chief of police, I think um, I've seen a lot of things occur during the time I was I was policing. And in fact, I wrote, I created a, a methodology called reaction analysis profiling, um, which you can look at. The, the book actually covers that called Visual Liar. Okay. And what I did was I, I during that, my police career, I developed a methodology where I could look at witnesses and use body language to uh, baseline um, deception from witnesses. So there was a three points, the head tilt, the eyes, and the mouth. And... Um, basically what happens in with visual, and you can get the book, it fully goes right through everything with visual liar. Uh, that, that's still, uh, an ebook, I think online. Um, and that, and that book, uh, basically will show you how accurate that truly is. And what you do with the, with these individuals, as I found with witnesses, I studied witnesses very heavily when I was a cop mm-hmm. and uh, witnesses were a big problem for me in that. First of all, they were never treated properly. For example, a lot of officers go in if they knew the witness personally, they would just assume they're telling the truth. That's not always the case. The fact that they know you quite well is another reason for them to also deceive you Mm -hmm. because they know they have credibility with you, especially in smaller policing uh, communities. So witnesses have to be treated as as if you're intelligence gathering. And if you're an intelligence operative or something like that, you're looking for inductive. So you're looking at um, the source, who is the source. 
how credible was the source? Does the source have a stake in the game? Does the source um, have negative um, elements in their um, past that would cause them to be deceptive in any way? Were they related to the individual that perhaps made the, the complaint or that made the complaint originally uh, or was the victim? Um, these sorts of things. Are they the suspect? So you use an inductive method. So you treat every witness, whether you know them or not, as persons potentially of interest if they if they get to that level. If they're telling you, you've got to be able to see the flags and see through your personal relationships and, and, and what you believe is a good guy, and you've got to see past that, that this individual may also be totally deceiving you. Have you ever um, done an interrogation where somebody, uh, where you knew somebody was lying to you? Have I done one where yeah. somebody's been lying to me? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I've done over 2,000 interviews and interrogations in my career. Interesting. Very. This is just absolutely fascinating to me. And like you said, you, you're looking at body language and, 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 and vocal inflection? Yeah, when I was doing interrogations, I was looking at body language. But for witnesses, not for the accused. Okay. Um, the suspect alone, if... If the suspect were to tell me something in the interrogation room mm -hmm. that didn't meet my investigation, I'd go back to check my witnesses to see exactly if somebody was deceptive in the witness side. It all falls back a lot of the time on physical and direct evidence from witnesses and physical evidence from what you found at a scene, if it's that type of case. Now, as, uh, as a chief of police, when the officers would finish doing the interrogation, did you get to see the report before it went to the courts? No, I, I vetted everything before I went to court. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I was in a smaller department, but, but, but yes, I was on, as a, as a, even as a sergeant or as a, um, you know, a supervisor, lieutenant or something like that, that's your job to vet it. But here's the problem. In police culture, what happens is the officer is a regular guy that always gives you great product, gives you great evidence, mm -hmm. and you don't, and you trust it blindly at that point. The fact of the matter is, I mean, you take a look at officers that are acting, um, you know, with force, for right. example. Um, these things are known in the department. They're not unknown. And when they do blow up, gee, I wonder why everybody's shocked about that. You know, right. this was a time bomb ready to go off. It's the same thing with investigators. When you have an officer that's, that's closing an un unreasonable amount of cases mm -hmm. with conclusions, that are always going to court. Look at the time frames that are involved in that. You can't necessarily, I mean, sure, you may be totally up and up, but you've got to start looking at the quality of the investigations. Was there any, you know, was there any shortcuts being taken in there that they're just assuming that this is the accused? Um, you know, I can look at an interrogation uh, very, very quickly, and I can also tell you right in the very beginning if it's going down the wrong path. Okay, okay. My other question is, like you say, sometimes there's missing stuff. Are you able to access the missing stuff, or is that gone forever? The missing stuff? Yeah, like you say, sometimes there's stuff that's that's not put in there that should have been put in there. Sure, or, or yeah, that. I mean, that's evidence. So if, it's, if the evidence doesn't meet the standard of the charge that needs to go to court, then you've got to question the credibility of that, of that evidence. And at all times, you have to look at, is this, if, if this is too good,
Okay. Okay. You have a very interesting job, you know, uh, from what you do. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely yeah, fascinating. Keeps me busy regularly. So how do the police officers feel about you? I mean, obviously you, you must run into some that, that you've worked with before. No. No? I deal with 49 of the 50 states. Okay. Um, I, I deal with every state, uh, every county. I work with public defenders' offices across the country. I work with federal, state, military. Um, I work with similar – I work only with uh, – uh, attorneys primarily. Okay. Okay. Not not that I'm not available to the right. DA's offices. Anytime they want to call, they can. But uh, generally, I get called <laughs> by these the agencies, and I work with them regularly. I was just wondering how they felt, you know, when they saw you coming in, hanging <laughs> into the room. Well, no, the, the police officers and stuff like that. Uh, they're, you know, they're, they're just for me. I don't know any of them, so. Uh, I just look at the work they do. That's all. Uh, I mean, I, I, I couldn't put a face on anybody. When somebody calls you uh, to help on a case, what, what, what's the process they have to go through to get you involved? Well, I do both uh, post-conviction and I also do cases before the court. Any case before the court has to be done through the attorney. Um, if it's going to court through, it has to be done through the attorney. In post-conviction cases, depending on how old they are, um, there's a lot of families will approach me to look at statements or something like that. That I do. Um, and uh, I prepare reports uh, because they don't have an attorney on board, and, mm -hmm. nor do they have any attorney that's going to be taking it anywhere at that point. Generally, I like working with the attorney because then I get the, the information directly from them, and they, can, they have access to information that obviously a family wouldn't have. So th in that respect, uh, that's important uh, on post cases. And, and there's a lot of a lot of post cases out there. When you say I get about twelve okay. calls a day on okay. post cases alone. When you say post cases, is that somebody that's already been convicted and is in prison? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they've been already convicted. Their appeals already finished. Uh, generally speaking, they've already been serving probably two to three years already. Generally, those are the types of cases I get a lot of. Kind of like like uh, with Scott Peterson. What just happened with Scott Peterson? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That yeah, just fa absolutely fascinated by all this. Um, now, when you have to do a post case, do you talk with the family at all? You don't. Well, I, I talk to the family to get some context of certain things because they have usually they have access to their their loved one or their person that they're they're advocating for. Um, but generally speaking, most people that are convicted already have their. Um, they already have their discovery package, which would be, you know, a lot of the information from the case that they that the attorney had given them. And if not, they usually go through that individual's attorney um, to get some of that documentation, or or get or the attorney sends it directly to me. My next question: um, I, I know the the appeals process takes a long time. So how is this handled? If after they get convicted, the family calls you. And, and you put all this together, does it have to go through appeals, or, or, do you, or can you go through oh, different channels? I have nothing to do with where it goes okay. after okay. that. Okay. I prepare it for them. Um, there's, they all, a lot of the time, they already have a process that they're already looking to do. They've spoken to somebody who's going to do a habeas corpus uh, petition or something like that in, you know, after the, for, the appeals have already been exhausted, something like that. Um, generally speaking, I don't get involved in any of that because I'm not an attorney. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't give them legal advice. I just basically say, you know, I do what I do. 
Um, if this is going to help you, then I'll do it for you. Um, and a lot of the time that, that happens. What's one of the oldest cases that you, or, or what, what is the oldest case that you've looked into? How, how many years? Well, I've, uh, the, the earliest one, uh, I won't get into details because it's still before the court in the civil action, mm -hmm. is um, New York in 19, uh, just after the Central Park Five. Okay. Wow. <laughs> That's a long time. Yeah, a lot of time goes by. Um, I mean, I've got, uh, you know, I also deal with um, uh, some cases, for example, that are um, the, uh, you know, that have gone, I think this there's one that was originally charged in, I'm going to say, oh, uh, it was charged in the 80s or 90s, but the case went back to 64. That's quite a while, quite a while. And he was charged with several counts of murder. He was on Dateline in uh, 2020. So was he able to get out at all? Uh, no, he's still in there. He's still I mean, in there? This, this case is uh, uh, very divisive in nature. So it's uh, these types of cases, they often they often take years to go through any, any sure. process whatsoever. Sure. If they go through any at all. A lot of times, even a lot of habeas are turned down, and uh, um, you know their their petitions are turned down, and uh, they exhaust pretty much everything by you know after they've been in prison for some period of time. Mm -hmm. How does it make you feel when you actually get to help somebody? You know, like like get out or or you know in, in a trial so they don't get convicted. Oh, I I I have lots of those cases, and yes. Um, you know, I, I I see what I accomplish every day. I mean, to me, it's a, and I hate to say it, it's kind of like a routine for me, but um, because it's it's like police work, you go out the street every day, you you fight crime every day, you make arrests, you make a difference, but you don't really think about it because mm -hmm. it's your regular your regular day gig. So um, I do the same thing here. Um, I you know I've got a lot of wins. Um, some that didn't get as far as I was hoping they'd get. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, the attorneys don't utilize my product that I provide them well enough to get their client off. Um, but nevertheless, it's still there. And uh, a lot of times my reports, you know, reduce or eliminate um, charges too. So I don't even testify a lot of the time. Um, the, the cases are once they see the actual detail and it broken down the way I do, um, they see that there there is insufficient evidence to proceed a lot of time. And, and so they'll do a, a real different deal or they'll do um, eliminate it and just withdraw it. Now when you talk about these reports, I mean, how thick are these things that, that you're reading through? Because obviously you've got vi probably video to look at and probably recordings, yeah. right? And including yeah. whatever they've written. Now, well, I so. mean, you know, you know, you're talking about uh, you're talking about a, a minute per page. Okay. Of transcript, uh, approximately. So if you if you have like for example a four hour um, a four hour interrogation, you're going to have a pretty thick. Uh, transcript, but the transcript is easy to work with with a, a video because I don't have to recreate it on the areas that I need to recreate because they all goes into my report. So, okay, okay. 
And how long does it usually take? I mean, like you say, as a minute goes into it, and how long does it take you to write up the report? Oh, uh, depends on how how many notes I've taken and uh, how many how much how much of a, a problem that particular uh, interrogation is or interview even. Um, it could be if there's a lot of minimization, a lot of maximization. Um, the report could take me. Nine days, ten days, just to write the report. Okay, okay, and, and that's probably a four-hour, four-hour a day, you know, uh, dedicated to that specific case. And you and you do get questioned by the lawyers, right? In court, sorry. And you do have to go to court and and sit in the witness stand, right? Yeah. And how long? So, I mean, what's the longest time you've had to be a witness to this stuff? Oh, how long I'm on the stand? Yeah. Uh, can be anywhere from an hour and a half to three hours. Okay. Averagely. Okay. Okay. Now, you teach classes on this, right? Nope. Okay. I thought you I taught. Teach okay. Some reason I thought you taught classes on it. I don't know why. Nope. I'm sorry. I apologize. I apologize for nope. that. <laughs> no. I'm 100. Uh, I'm 100 in the trenches, so I do nothing but. Um, cases all day long that's all i do is it just you doing this for, for your business or do you have help doing it well i have an assistant that um but i only use the assistant when i need specific things done i do i do 100 percent of it uh but sometimes i need transcripts um created quickly on something that i'm working on and i'll bring in my assistant for that purpose but they're more part-time i just uh, i just use them when i need them well it's like you say you must keep really busy then I am very busy, yes. I work 12, 13-hour days. Wow. How, how many calls do you think you get a day for this stuff? About 12, 12, 13 calls. That's incredible. I don't take everything, but I mean, bottom line is I, I take time with clients on the phone. And whether attorneys, when they call me, it's, a, it's usually going ahead right away. So um, they'll usually get me things right away. But when it comes to families or inquiring over, uh, you know, post-conviction cases, um, I listen to them. Sometimes I'll spend an hour on the phone with them just because I, I, I like to listen to them because they are very frustrated with the system the way it is. And, and so just, they just need, sometimes they just need an ear to hear it, that's all. So how do you get referred? I mean, how do they get your number? Are they referred by the attorneys, or how does that work? Well, no, my, uh, you just have to go to my website, uh, criminalcaseconsultants.com. Okay, okay. But that's my question, is that like for the people that don't know about your website, are, are they getting referred by their attorneys? No, they, I, they, a lot of the time they'll find my, okay. my website. Just uh, Googling? The, the one that the post-conviction people use is convictionhub.com. Okay, okay. That's what I was curious that's about. Got, that's got all the resources on it and everything, so they can go in and look at resources and things. What's one of the worst, um, you don't have to give any names on this, but... What was one of the worst abuses of, of this power ha have you found? <laughs> well, um, the worst? Yeah. So far in your career. <laughs> well, I would say, I would say when, when, the, when videos start getting uh, edited and, and re um, and tampered and mm -hmm. when evidence is being tampered with, these are cases that are, very, very extremely troubling. And they're not an awful lot. you got to remember there's a difference between misconduct 
and actual just not knowing. Sometimes officers will do things that they think is correct, and they really believe that what they're doing is correct, and and they're not they're not purposely going and um, you know it, uh, causing a problem for somebody. They really believe the evidence is there. They believe they did a great investigation, and at the end of the day, um, they're satisfied with what they did. That's why the charges were laid. So. In a lot of these cases, a lot of them don't don't have misconduct involved. Mm-hmm. I would say probably with all the cases I've dealt with, as actual outright misconduct, I'm going to say maybe seven percent. Okay. Okay. The rest is basically naivety, bad training, um, getting involved in the narrative. In other words, becoming part of the drama, um, having preconceived uh, notions. For example, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let's say that you have a a domestic dispute, Uh and two officers go to a domestic dispute. And the one officer has seen too many domestic disputes, and in his own life he got divorced, and there's there's all sorts of issues there. So he goes to, both of them go to the same domestic. One's a senior partner, one's not the senior partner. Um, the, the, the The guy that's the husband, um, they hear yelling in the house and they knock on the door. Um, they come to the door. The male is extremely agitated. Um, he's yelling at the top of his lungs. Um, the one officer tries to de-escalate the situation. The other officer is automatically, or, sorry, automatically um, targeting this individual as a potential suspect because he believes in his mind, not, not that he saw anything, that this guy is angry. So right away, let's say now the female says, yes, he, he pushed me, um, and it goes, it goes like that. So automatically there's a predisposition created mm-hmm. without sitting down and, and actually in a non-dramatic um, setting talking to both individuals and see what the evidence is, not what you think it is. And that's mm-hmm. where the difference. Okay. Okay. Now, when you watch T, because you 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 touched on the media earlier, when you look at some of the stuff on TV, you know that the media is posting. How does that make you feel? You know, when you see how you know these different arrests going on and whatnot. Are you talking about the way the media um, sensationalize it? Yes. Or are they, or or are they factual? So keep in mind. Okay. Most media, unless if they're if they're getting their information from police departments, courts, or anything else, there's certain things that they're going to be given purposely um, that is going to send them in a different direction if they're dealing with police departments. Okay. Okay. It's not always what you think it is. There's a lot more to it. Um, And so the police department may not give you a certain information only because when when that is um, the media reports on it, they keep back certain details of certain crimes simply because when they're talking to suspects and they're doing interrogations, they, this individual, if he starts confessing, he'll know these details that were never given to the press. Right. And that's how they know if he's a potentially a suspect or he potentially did it. 
and what comes to mind are the cameras because i mean when the media shows uh, like like a like a police officer killing somebody you don't see the whole video on what happened you're no, only getting that that, that that little that little plug um, of this and, happening and it's it, when it does get to a certain especially when it comes through social media it can be edited different ways i mean to make it look like something else too right right um have you ever had anybody that, that that you've gotten, you know, that you've been able to free, or somebody that that you know that that didn't get convicted that that came out and thanked you straight out, or do you, or once you testify, do you leave, or how's that work? You know what, I I'm I get on a plane and fly back to where I am, and okay. pretty much I don't really hear much. They deal with the attorney. I I don't deal with it if it's before the court. Okay. I very I will have absolutely no contact with those individuals. Um, all, all they'll know me from is my work that I provided to the attorney. If someone is uh, uh, under interrogation, and here's another question I always wondered, and uh, during the middle of interrogation, it, it's interrogation, and an attorney shows up, do, does the police have to stop automatically? Absolutely, absolutely, right away. If they want an attorney, and they're in a custodial interrogation, mm-hmm. um, it stops immediately. Mm-hmm. And okay. generally speaking, it's also um, a, a requirement to stop it, even if it's not a, a custodial. Sometimes it's interpreted differently, but generally speaking, um, if they want their attorney, it stops immediately. Okay. Now, we t- you talked about this earlier about different types of personalities when you're trying to get information you know, for witnesses out of them. How do you guys handle children? Well, children, uh, children, number one, are vulnerable, number, mm-hmm. one, number one. Are you talking about as a witness? Yeah. Okay, as a witness, number one, um, if they're giving you information, they should be with a parent. Um, and in that interview, you should also discuss, um, or parent or guardian, you should also discuss what conversations they had prior to. Okay. Okay. Very important. Because what happens is, um, the a child will always have an understanding of what they're saying, but if they're tender years, very young, um, they also may share information with a friend of theirs. Right. Which is basically um, another person that you should also be interviewing as a as a police officer, if, because it's recent complaint. If somebody, mm-hmm. if somebody. They saw something or something happened to them. They're going to tell somebody probably their own age first, if at all, but more likely. And that's something you should determine when you're talking to the child as an interviewer. You know, who did you, what, what, what are your friends? Did you ever tell one of your friends? Yeah, I told so. Then you talk to that individual. It gives you a good um, window into the credibility of the information. What type of person makes a good witness? A good witness? Yeah. Um, I would say somebody that's able to um, recall information quickly, but not too quickly. Then it becomes suspicious. It's scripted at that point. Um, you know, I always looked at witnesses as being, you can take anybody. Mm-hmm. And as long as they're themselves and they're not trying to cover something up, they're all good witnesses. Now, on the stand, their testimony may be different. So mm-hmm. 
I was just thinking because I'm one of these people that I'm miserable with dates. All all the days run one runs into the other. So if I have to, you know, tell somebody about something happened on such and such day, I can't remember what day it is. And, and nor should you. And nor should you. What you and, and the fact that you would remember may even put a flag up. Okay. Okay. So you expect a witness not necessarily to remember dates and time. But what you can do is say to them something like, well, do you recall what you were doing that day? All right, that makes sense. Oh, yeah, I was I was driving to pick up my mother from work. Okay, so when does your mother work? What day would that be, do you think? And you always look at it as, you know, subjective. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But other evidence should support that. Okay. Okay. And the other thing I was thinking of, and I know this is silly, it's, it's going to be like silly, but you know, the, the movie, my, my, co- my cousin Vinny, you know, when he goes out, his, his line of questioning, when he's talking to people like the guy that was making, I guess, grits and you know, he, he says, you know, it doesn't take 45 minutes to make grits. Yeah. Well, that's absolutely right. Yeah. And the investigation, I mean, these are little things, little points that you can bring up. And right. these are questions that if you come up, that's why you have to be, um, as, a, as an investigator, you have to have your ability to go in and say, hey, look, you know, you just told me this mm-hmm. and that doesn't make sense. Maybe you could explain that. Okay. And then leave it open questioning. The minute you start closing it for them, saying, oh, this doesn't make sense, but it's probably because of this and this, and you put that into their, you've integrated that into their into their mind now, mm-hmm. that becomes your testimony, not theirs. I think one of the things with journalism that they teach us is to not answer, clo- to, to not ask closed-ended questions. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's why your questions should always be open-ended. No matter what they say, if they don't recall certain things, then you can you can you can sit there and go over certain details and get them to relate it to something else, perhaps. And if it, if they can't if they can't, they're not a good witness. Sounds good to me. Right, here's one more question for you. And I ask this to everybody I interview, kind of offbeat, but let's say you're in La, you're on the strip in Las Vegas and there's a bunch of guys out there that have, that offer a similar service that you do. How, how do you convince people to utilize your services? I don't. Okay. All right. There you go. All right. Well, I want to thank you. I really appreciate you coming on. I know you're a busy guy, but I really appreciate it. I, I don't mind doing these from time to time. I learned so much from you today, and I thank you so much. And I hope I didn't bore you, bore you to death or, 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 oh, no, or no, silly you no, to no, death no. or any of my I silly do, questions. I do a lot of interviews. I mean, I, I prefer <laughs> to get the word out of what uh, what's out there. And a lot of people don't realize that there's uh, there's people, there are experts myself, like myself that 
you know, it's not just myself. There's experts in every different types of categories, you know. Right. Forensic experts in ballistics, forensic experts in crime scene construction, reconstruction. There's all sorts of experts out there, but you have to know what you want to look for and what the issue is and then go looking for those experts. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I'll let you get back to your work. And uh, like I said, I really appreciate it. It's taken us a while to touch, to touch base, but I've been looking forward to this for a couple months. So thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right, Bill. Thank you so much. Okay. You have a good one. All right. Bye-bye. Bye now. Okay. I learned a lot. I always say I learned a lot, but I really, I really did learn a lot. I'm sorry if my questioning kind of went off beat with Cousin Vinny, but if if you watch that movie, I don't know who, how many people have seen that movie, but he's really quite good, <laughs> you know, when, when, he, when he starts to sort things out. But it's nice to know there's gentlemen like this that can go through, you know, and, and look at cases like that, especially especially when you think that, you know, you're in trouble and, 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 and you want to figure out, you know, if they're, putting, if they're, they're throwing away the key, you know, and it's all legit. Anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming today and for listening. It's, like I said, this was a last-minute thing for me. I've been up all night. I didn't sleep very well last night, so I'm on no sleep, too. But tomorrow I'm going to be here at noon again. We have another interview coming in, and she is going to talk about past lives. Her name is, is Linda Backman, Dr. Linda Backman, and she'll be talking about past lives. And she's got some really cool information that I hadn't heard of before so i think it'll be information you haven't heard of so i want to thank everybody for coming and i hope you join me tomorrow now got the usual niceties to end the show if you like the show uh if you see that little banner thing going ticker tape going across the bottom i call it my cnn tape uh please donate um this all comes out of my pocket and i need all the help i can get to keep this show on the air so that's paypal.me at california haunts if you like the show share it with five people if you didn't like the show share it with five of your enemies and that's how we're getting the word out and we're getting the word out more and more and more more and more and more our downloads are going up by by, by two three hundred every month and i'm really excited about that the other thing we're trying to do is get it so people subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, you cannot find us, no matter how you search. You can search, you can Google the videos, not going to happen. The reason why is because we need a certain number of subscribers in order to get a dedicated URL on our YouTube channel. So the more people we have subscribe, the more we're going to be able to, you know, the, the, the more people we have subscribed will give us the numbers that we need to get that dedicated URL. In the meantime, if you want to check out some of our past videos, because we're in our second season. I believe this is our 72nd or 73rd show. And if you want to see some of these back shows and you can't find us on YouTube, go to www.CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. And, you're, and everything's there. There's archives. You click on the archives at the top. It'll take you through last year and this year. And if you want to subscribe to YouTube, you can do it from there as well. Because that'll take you to YouTube anyway. Okay? Well, I want to thank you guys for coming. And I'm going to go ahead and share this gentleman's website before I leave. And there you go. It's Coercive Interrogations. Oh, and CoerciveInterrogationExpert.com if you guys want to check him out. And see what he does in case you're in trouble or something with, with the law. But anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming. And I'm going to go ahead and close out now. And I will see you guys tomorrow.